So today we're going to continue with the terrain of the journey. Last week we talked about the valleys of the journey, of the terrain, and our epic tale that we're all living. And we saw Job as a great example of how the valleys can be used to bring us into a relationship with God, to know Him by faith, in a way that we'll never have another opportunity to do. And how God really wanted his favorite guy to make sure he didn't miss out on anything on his two-minute adventure ride. But, you know, most of our life is lived in every day. And Job, we don't know how long that period was where he went through that intense suffering. And certainly those times are incredibly important in shaping who we become. But most of life is routine. And we tend to... Uh, underestimate the value of that routine. Martin Luther said this, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. (laughs) The word routine comes from the Latin root, which essentially means a beaten path. We get our word root from it, like root 66. And It's just the routine of doing things we do all the time. Washing dishes, changing diapers, paying bills, doing our repetitive tasks at work, showing up at 8 o'clock. And this is where most of Christianity is to be lived and where God cares about all these things and to an enormous extent. Oswald Chambers has a uh, writing here. It's worth reflection. He says, we do not need the grace of God to withstand crisis. And I don't think he's talking about here that uh, that the the extended period of crisis, but the crisis of the moment itself. Human nature and pride are sufficient for us to face the stress and strain magnificently. But it does require the supernatural grace of God to live 24 hours of every day as a saint, going through drudgery, living an ordinary, unnoticed, and ignored existence as, as a disciple of Jesus. It is ingrained in us that we have to do exceptional things for God, but we do not. We have to be exceptional in the ordinary things of life and holy on the ordinary streets among ordinary people. And this is not learned in five minutes. (laughs) Yeah, ordinary life is a big, big, big deal. It tends to be grossly underemphasized. Let's look at one of the best verses on this topic, Colossians 3. Colossians 3.23. Colossians 3.23 says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. And this verse is incredibly important for a couple of reasons. One is, it makes it clear that the inheritance can be a reward. There are various verses in the Bible that say you can lose your inheritance if you do these things. And those verses are often used to say we can lose our justification. God says, pronounces, you are free of all sin for all time, and later says, I changed my mind, and erases it. Of course, God does not do that. And here we can see the inheritance is a reward. But not all inheritance is a reward. Flip over to Romans 8 real quick. Romans eight seventeen, starting 16. The Spirit Himself 
bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We are children of God. And if children, then heirs, inheritors. Heirs of God. Being an heir of God is totally unconditional. We can never lose that inheritance because we're born into God's family. Now, once we're born into God's family, it's a permanent thing. But look at the next part of that verse. And joint heirs with Christ, a joint inheritor with Christ, if we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified with Him. So there's a part of the inheritance, the the familial part, the part about being born into His family. We didn't have anything to do with that. Just like our physical birth, we had nothing to do with it. We just showed up. About two, two, two years old or something, we woke up and said, we're alive. But the, the, actual, uh, the actual part of the inheritance where we grow up and either become responsible and can help the family fortune or we become irresponsible and for our best interest, they write us out of the will. That part depends on what we become. So the reward of the inheritance is the part about our possession. Do we reign with Christ or not? That's conditional. But the other reason this is so important, this verse, is because of its emphasis on what faithfulness looks like. Who is Jesus looking for to share his throne with? He's looking for, go back to verse 22, bondservants, employees, not the masters, not the executives, not the business owners. 22 of what? Oh, back to Colossians 3. Back to Colossians 3.22. So Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do it heartily. Colossians 3.22, this is who he's ta- talking to. Bond servants, regular employees, people who are just doing a job. They're in charge of the horses. They're in charge of the farm. They're in charge of the house. They're in charge of bringing in the crops. They're in charge of... Raising the children, perhaps, or caring for the children. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service. If you were a bond servant, it would be very, very tempting to only work when you knew you were being watched. Pays the same either way, right? But he says, no, no. Work as though you're working for me, God. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Care what God thinks. Why? Why do you want to care what God thinks? Because God is watching. And now let's go, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men, knowing from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. God wants to look for faithful people in small things, and that's who He wants to give to share His throne with Him. Well, you really can't beat that deal. It's it's like the best deal ever. Except it takes faith to believe. Because this isn't something we can see. can't see God. And the reward is in the future. Uh, admittedly, from a standpoint of existence, it's just a wisp of vapor. But it doesn't seem like to us, uh, that to us at the time. Uh, look who else he's talking to. Verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This is also a way to win the reward of the inheritance. Good parenting. Uh, there's nothing more grueling than being a good parent. It never lets up. The, the kids never stop testing the boundaries. Uh, and they, they never stop their bodily functions that you have to clean up after. They, they never stop getting hungry. But look, being a good parent is the kind of thing that God's looking for. Oh yeah, that's who I want to share my throne with me. 
And even look at verse 20. Children, obey you th- your, your uh, parents in all things. Isn't this crazy? We can, one of the things we can teach our children is, you want to make God happy, do, do what I ask you to do. I don't know if you've used that lever or not, but I recommend it. <laughs> Look at 19. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be bitter toward them. Uh, this is, that's just who God's looking for. There's nothing... Oh, no, no, let me, not, let me go there. <laughs> wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's not easy to respect someone who's an idiot, right? And to, all men are idiots to various extents. It's just a matter of degree. But when you choose to do so, God is saying, Man, let, that's a servant king I want to my, share my throne with. So, it, it's amazing. And these are all just everyday things. Verse 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Even the words we use during the day. God is looking for faithfulness. And, he's, and this is, this is the, the extent or the, the, the core part of how we win the reward of the inheritance. I got to read Diane Pass's book on John Pass. I don't, I, hopefully all of you have gotten to meet John. He was uh, in his late 80s when he died. And he was really, really loved by people in our church. He was, for many reasons, not the least of which was his uh, contagious enthusiasm for life and his overbearing friendliness. He's the closest thing to a golden retriever that jumps up and puts his muddy paws on you every time he sees you that you'll ever meet. And Diane wrote this book about his life. I got to preview it. And I was thinking about it. And it was kind of remarkable to me. Come in. It was kind of remarkable to me that Diane had a few episodes in there where they mounted significant difficulties, these valleys, these trials of life. And that was a big part of what shaped them. But most of the memories were just of John being John. Just where he, with enthusiasm, did something in everyday life that to John would not have been remarkable at all. He was just being himself. But it made a big impact on someone else. Well, see, even in everyday life, it's that way. I remember when my dad was dying. I got to go see him about two weeks before he died. He went really fast. The last time I saw him, he was carrying firewood into the house. Uh, But I remember him saying something like... um, People uh, talking to him about things that he did that really impacted them positively and him not even remember doing it. And I I think this is a common occurrence. And that's just a small snippet of God's perspective where he knows the importance of everyday things. I mean, he cares about the hairs on our head. He cares about the sparrows. Everyday matters. This is where most of life is lived. So what I want to do now is go through six different perspectives about everyday life that hopefully will help us be encouraged of the importance of what we do. Uh, We have a media that's constantly feeding us the notion that our life is not as important as the people in Hollywood that set their hair on fire every day or or the... uh, or our lives is not as important as the politicians who uh, meddle in our lives all the time, or 
It's, you know, something, being famous is a big deal, this pop culture business, being famous. But that's not, that's not reality. And I think rehearsing these perspectives, I think, will help us in uh, realizing what reality is really like. So the first perspective, a job well done reflects God who specializes in work excellence. When we do excellent work, we're actually reflecting God. Work matters a lot. Uh, Titus writes about this thing. He says in Titus 2.9, Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of our God, or of God our Savior in all things. Uh, in the message, Eugene Peterson says this, Then their good character will shine through their actions, adding luster to the teaching of our Savior God. When we do excellent, we actually reflect who God is. You know, the first time we encounter God in the Bible, what is He doing? He's creating. Have you, have you noticed the creation? The extent to which the details are taken care of. It's pretty spectacular, isn't it? Uh, as microbiology continues to develop, this notion of simple to complex has totally cratered. There's no simple. The, the, the intricacy of even down to the molecular level is immense. These cells in our body have basically all the same functions that a factory does, including security guards. And burglars, the viruses that get in through the security. There's Mission Impossible going on in our body all the time. Uh, but, you know, that's what God does. He takes care of detail. One of our sons was on a sports team, and the team substantially underperformed really what it should have. And he told me one time, as someone came and asked him what the, what the main reason for that was, and he said, lack of attention to detail. You know, we had the capability, but what we did not do is the small things, the, the basics. We would talk about it, but we didn't do it over and over and over again. If you're going to be successful in a game, you have to do these things over and over again. If you're a basketball player, for example, it takes a lot of energy to go try to get a rebound on every play. It's draining. And if you try on every play, you might get two extra rebounds a game. Maybe just one. After all that effort for one or two. And you might get one basket out of that. Well, if you have six or seven guys that play, take most of the minutes and they all do that, that's ten rebounds and twenty points. And you win every game. And that's kind of the way life goes. Not surprisingly, Jesus himself. If we look at Mark 7.37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. Well, that's before Jesus had his earthly ministry. Jesus was a faithful worker. And he was faithful in his everyday tasks. We all have a number of jobs that we do. We have our vocational jobs. But, you know, really, going back to Colossians 3, we have our parent jobs, perhaps our grandparent job, our son or daughter job, our friend job, our community member job, our citizen job, 
our church member job. All these jobs have everyday components to it, and they're all work. The first thing God gave Adam to do after he created, go to work. That's what we're made for. Look at little kids. What do they do? They pretend to work. They build things and tear them apart. <laughs> they play house. They cook. Imaginary. What is it? Uh, pasta yogurt is what our granddaughters want to always cook for us. I have no idea how pasta yogurt can uh, taste, but we have had a lot of it. <laughs> Dorothy Sayers has an essay called Why Work? Dorothy Sayers was a, one of the inklings with uh, J.R. Tolkien and, um, and C.S. Lewis. She says this, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disloyally in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Church by all means and decent forms of amusement, certainly. But what use is all of that if the very center of his life and occupation he is insulting God with bad carpentry? No crooked le table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, come out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor, if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by that same hand that made heaven and earth. No piety in the worker will compensate for work that is not true to itself. For any work that is untrue to its own technique is a living lie. She, the church, has forgotten that the secular vocation is sacred. Forgotten that a building must be good architecture before it can be a good church. That a painting must be well painted before it can be a good sacred picture. That work must be good work before it can call itself God's work. What the church should be telling her is this. The very first demand that his religion makes on him, on him is that he makes good tables. It isn't just that the ultimate hero of the universe made great tables. It's that the ultimate hero of the universe made great tables as a part of becoming the ultimate hero of the universe. Jesus did carpentry for 30 years. Now, Jesus was a tecton, and that has been interpreted as carpenter. It may actually be stonemason in this area. Nazareth was a big stonework. The principle's the same. Well, the second perspective, there's no such thing as a secular vocation if the work is done with an eye to pleasing God. There's no distinction between sacred and secular. This notion that our work is, or our parenting, or our work with neighbors, the things outside the church, has some lesser value than the things in the church, is just not biblical. In this same article, Sayers writes these strong words. And she wrote, probably, I don't know when she wrote this essay, but I would guess it's something on the order of 60 years ago or so. And nothing, and so the England, England's probably about 50 years ahead of us in the prog progress we're going down, so it's probably pretty appropriate to today. And nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends, and the, the greater parts of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious, or at least uninterested in religious. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion that seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? It is the business of the church to recognize that the secular vocation as such is sacred. 
Christian people, and particularly perhaps the Christian clergy, must get it firmly under their heads that when a man or woman is called to a particular job of secular work, that is as true a vocation as though he or she were called to specifically religious work. And I would just add that this applies to every other thing we do too, whether it's a local community club or civic engagement in politics or uh, just doing some kind of neighborhood watch or our club with our friends, working out with a group of friends, what, what do you guys, boot camp. All, all these things are, are act, vocational work that we can do as unto the Lord. For many of us, a huge part of the two-minute rides in the workplace, and Martin Luther added his two cents to this, he said, The maid who sweeps her kitchens doing the will of God just as much as the monk. I've started with this quote. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. And one of the things we can do is think of being faithful in the routine as being an apprentice for being a heroic servant king. If you've been an employer... Or if you've employed someone, maybe even a handyman in your house, do you care if they pay attention to the small details? Oh, I just forgot to lock up tonight. That's a small thing. Oh, I just forgot to turn the water off. Sorry it flooded. Very small things can make very big impacts. Well, the third thing, perspective, is to recognize the excellence of doing the seemingly mundane builds godly character. You know, it's not so much in life what we do, but who we become. If we go back to Romans 8, we can look at this famous verse in 29, which says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is our destiny to be conformed to the image of the Son. I happen to think it will happen to all of us. But to the extent it takes place in this world by faith, and we're conformed by faith, the rewards are immense. There's this verse that says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things I'm preparing for those who love me those who do what we, God asks us to do. There's this unimaginable thing that God want, wants to give to us if we will be conformed to the image of Christ by faith. British pastor F.B. Meyer says this, So the incidents of daily life may be commonplace in the extreme, but on them, as the material foundation, we may build the unseen but everlasting fabric of a noble and beautiful character. Now, Jesus spent six times longer as a carpenter than as a rabbi. Who knows how many plows he fixed or stone works that he did, whatever his job was. And at age 30, when he began his earthly ministry, the first words he heard from his father were, You're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I, could we interpret that to say, Man, you've been a great carpenter. I don't think that's that unreasonable. Uh, Luke 2.52 Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. 
We can think about Dorothy Sayers' statement again. No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers I, I ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Being faithful in small things shapes who we become. It's the accumulation of these details that determine what kind of player we are. If we have these great habits, then when the crunch time comes, sometimes it's seen. Well, the fourth perspective that we can look at is that big things are determined by small things. Here we might go stay with this athletic theme, but go back to the Greeks because Paul used the notion of a, the Greek Olympic Games fairly often. He talks in 1 Corinthians 9 about winning crowns. If you finish the race, you win a crown. Well, the Greek Olympic Games were uh, worked this way. In order to be in the games, you had to be a native-born Greek. So for you first, you have to be in the family. Just like we have to be in the family. We've got to be born again first before we can win the reward of the inheritance. But from then on, it's mostly a matter of a person's choice. They have to be nominated, and then they have to go to training. Everybody comes to training. The rule in the Greek Olympic Games was, if you break one rule, you're disqualified. When Paul says, man, I'm running the race because I don't want to be disqualified, actually, in the context of 1 Corinthians 9, He's being criticized for not being paid for his work. And it seems like the criticism is, well, he's just an amateur. If he was a real apostle, he would be being paid. And he says, I I could be paid like anyone else and bring along a believing wife like Peter does. The reason I'm not paid is twofold. One, I think this works better. And the second thing is, I'm kind of concerned about abusing my authority. I know myself. And I know I tend to take advantage of of my authority. So I'm not going to risk it because I don't want to be disqualified from winning the race. He understood as an athlete that he had a weakness for hamburgers. So he wouldn't go near the hamburger store. Because if you don't eat the fruit and nuts and whatever for the training diet, you go have a hamburger, you're done. It's interesting. One of the training rules was you can't loaf. They had marshals watching the training. And if you started loafing, you're out. This, this, uh, this training, I can't remember the Greek word pronunciation. Well, I never know it in the first place. Agony, agony, we get our word, I just, I won't even try. We'll get our word agony from it. Because it's hard work. But to the Greeks, it was awesome. Because the harder the job, the more glory you could win. And what they got was this little wreath that would perish. And Paul said, they can receive something perishable, we something imperishable that will never fade away. And it all happens from small things. The Bible gives another very, um, I think, very deliberate picture of greatness. And it's this notion of a cup of cold water in his name. Now, if you've been to Israel and you go to some of these cities, you will get to go into a cistern. Maybe you might walk down 50 or 100 steps to get to the water level. And that's where you would have to go if you wanted cold water. Or maybe there's a well and you have to go and hoist down the bucket and then hoist it back up. Not a a task that requires a lot of training or a lot of skill. Most anybody could do it. But yet one of considerable trouble. And a task that's considered a task 
only for the women. It would be beneath a man to do this in that culture. But what Jesus says is, if you give a cup of cold water to someone in my name, that is greatness. Little things are big things. When we are faithful in these small things, we are doing something that God considers great. And man doesn't. What we have to do is have the eyes of faith to see that God's perspective is the best. There's a book still in print about Brother Lawrence. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy. He was a monk that lived in the Middle Ages. He didn't go into the monastery until he was in his 50s. And he actually wasn't even a monk. He was a kitchen worker. And there's this, these, these reflections on conversations with Brother Lawrence. He didn't even write a book. People wrote books about their conversations with him. And what he learned to do was do his kitchen work in communion with God. Not as a, if I do this work, then I can go be with God in private. But as I do these pots and pans, which he hated, by the way. He did not like kitchen work. It's just what they had for him to do. As I do this, I'm experiencing the presence of God. And I'm walking with God as I do these things. And his joy in daily tasks caused people from come from all around to want to ask, how do you do this? And 500 years later, we still have books in print about these reflections with God, Brother Lawrence just because he learned to practice the presence of God doing mundane tasks. It's a big deal. The fifth perspective, we're judged by what we do with what we have been entrusted not about what we would have done with what we didn't have. There's this old and bad joke about a pastor and Farmer Brown. And the pastor comes to Farmer Brown and says, Farmer Brown, if you had 50 cows, would you give 20 of them to the Lord? Pastor, you know if I had 50 cows, I would give 20 of them to the Lord. Well, Farmer Brown, if you had 30 cows, would you give 10 of them to the Lord? Pastor, you know if I had 30 cows, I would give 10 of them to the Lord. Well, Farmer Brown, if you had 20 cows, would you give five of them to the Lord? Oh, come on, Pastor, you know I have 20 cows. I warned you it wasn't that great of a joke. But this is what we tend to do. If I had, then I would. Well, that's not what God looks for. To whom much is given, much is expected. The corollary to that is to whom little is given, little is expected. But look at the poor widow who did the widow's might. And Jesus saw her put her mites in the treasury and said, that woman gave more than all these rich guys because she gave all she had. She could have sat around saying, I only have this small portion. When I have more, then I will give more. But she did with what she had. Little was expected. But that little was considered the greatest. Well, one of the things we can be challenged on this is the time you have now, not what you will have when you retire, the resources you have now, not the resources you have when you're 
big investment comes in. What are you, how are you being faithful with those things now? That's what God cares about, not what men think, but what God thinks. There's also the reality that if you're in America, you're in the upper 1% of wealth in the world, pretty much almost no matter who you are. So we've been entrusted with much materially. Unfortunately, we have a spiritual de de deficiency all around. There's a lot of people that need investment. And the final perspective is that excellence of work often opens unique doors to opportunities of influence. We actually see this in our company all the time, and I'm, I'm sure this is normal. When we have an employee that is really faithful in small things, which we will often do, we'll take someone who really got the credentials to be in a pretty high-level job and put them in what is considered a low-level job and see how they approach it. And if they approach it as though it's beneath them, then we don't usually move that person along. We usually move them along to some other company. But if that person digs in and gives it everything they got, we say, that's the kind of heart we want to promote. Well, if we do that in our little company, how much more would our creator want to do that? Wouldn't he? You see a man who excels in his work, Solomon said, he will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. Proverbs 22. We never know what doors may open because of our job doing the very best of our ability. It's not up to us to decide that. But we do know that whatever we do heartily to be seen by God, not before men, is building up uh, pleasure in God's heart. And he wants to give us this reward of the inheritance. So, this two-minute ride, our two-minute Snow White adventure ride, that's our life, where God wants us to be the hero. He wants us to live among dwarves, dwarfed humanity, in this scary forest of a world where there's lots of bad things that happen to us. And he wants us to do so cheerfully. Because greater is he that is in us than is he who is in the world. And he wants us to be faithful in what we can do. He doesn't want us to be faithful in what we wish we could do. And in doing so, it's just like Michelangelo with one of his great sculptures. One little chisel at a time. God is chiseling away the part of us that does not look like Christ. So next week, I'm going to do the third kind of train, which is the mountaintops. The valleys are an opportunity for us to know God by faith in a way that oftentimes we can't learn any other way. And God doesn't want us to miss out on that opportunity at all. The mundane plains are the place where we can really grow our character because it takes real eyes of faith to see that what, other, that what men do not value, God values. But oftentimes the mountaintop is the very hardest to overcome. Because when we have everything going for us, we tend to forget reality. We start thinking we're actually in control. So we'll talk about that next week. God, thank you for your faithfulness in everyday mundane tasks. I pray that you'll help us have the eyes to see how important everyday mundane tasks are to you. 
and for us to be faithful in these small things. Know that we are changing the world and changing eternity when we're willing to be faithful in these small things. Thank you for this encouragement that our lives matter so much to you, whoever we are, no matter how small we may seem in the eyes of man. In Jesus' name, amen.